Hello friends, in today's episode of the ATC Double Cut, I am pleased to inform you that we're going to talk about three recent blog posts that I haven't talked about yet, three blog posts that give some useful information that are not just simply theoretical, but I will try to summarize in each one of these blog posts that we talk about what some of the key take-home points are or how you can apply that in the turf that you manage. So uh, as I was looking through these before clicking the record button, I thought, yeah, this is, uh, this is something that turns out to be a little bit practical. So I'll share my screen. If you're listening to this, I'm going to describe to you what we're looking at. These are three recent blog posts. This, this is one called, This is a Soil pH Chart that I do like. And uh, soil pH, of course, is very important. And yet I've also been discussing uh, or, or mentioning, although I didn't really record a podcast specifically about it, uh, I've been mentioning a soil pH chart that I don't like. And I talked about that when Doug Soldot joined me on the ATC Double Cut to talk about the striking effect of potassium on snow mold. And towards the end of that episode, I said, hey, Doug, there's one more thing I'd like to talk about. Should we talk about that recent, fantastic, wonderful soil pH paper that I love that said, you know, that famous chart about pH that everybody's seen and that's in the textbooks and stuff. Isn't it great that one of your colleagues at the University of Wisconsin Soil Science Department wrote an article, published an article, along with uh, another scientist from Australia that said that chart should not be used. And Doug said, well, I kind of like it actually, you know, maybe it's not perfect, but it is useful to show the effect of soil pH on nutrient availability and give people an idea about how it might be. Um, hmm, I don't know. You can, you can listen to Doug's response and, and watch that episode. Um, but we were talking specifically about the article, which is behind a paywall so if you don't have access to that know or contact the authors they'll send you a copy or i will send you a copy um if, if you're interested it's an article a very easy to read article by hartemink and barrow that's the name of the authors and the article's title is soil ph nutrient relationships the diagram and that article reviews the diagram which is that chart that i'm sure you've seen as you've studied about turf grass, studied about soil science, studied about turf grass nutrition, it's a chart that is extremely common to see. And on the y-axis, on the vertical axis, I think it starts with nitrogen at top, and then it shows phosphorus, and then it shows potassium and calcium and magnesium and sulfur and iron and manganese and so on. And each one of those elements has a bar. And the width of the bar across a range of pHs, which is on the horizontal axis, starting with very acid, something like three or four, and going up to a high pH, which is eight or nine or 10, the width of that bar for each element changes. And it, it goes to really narrow when there's relatively less availability of that nutrient. And then it goes to a wide fat bar, a thick bar for the soil pH range at which those elements are supposed to be more available. Now, I have never particularly liked that chart. 
because I think there's a lot of exceptions to it and it doesn't really provide anything that's very useful in what we can use. That's, that's my take on it. And of course, as I told Doug, I don't have to teach introductory soil science, so I don't need to explain that kind of thing. I, I can just sit around not liking that chart and, and that's fine. Um, and so I was pleased to read this article, which just came out uh, a couple months ago. So in that article, Hard to Make and Barrel wrote this, and I quote, the soil pH cannot be used to predict or estimate plant nutrient availability. Diagram should not be used as it suffers from numerous exceptions and barely represents any rules, end quote. And that's what I think. And uh, so I, I'm quite happy to not use that chart. And then I remembered... Um, I remembered the conversation with Doug and I was looking for and I was looking at an article looking at something about nutrient availability. Actually, I wanted to see what Dr. Caro had written in a 1995 article that he wrote for the GCSAA's golf course management magazine about soil testing. And so the article was soil testing for fertilizer recommendations, which is in the November 1995 issue of golf course management magazine. And that article, uh, as I was looking through it to see what he said about where soil nutrient guidelines came from, because I was working on another project about soil nutrient guidelines, I came across table five in that article by Dr. Carroll, Dr. Bob Carroll from the University of Georgia. The table five is titled Influence of Soil pH in Turfgrass Systems. And I looked at it and it doesn't have those bars. It doesn't list every element from top to bottom. Um, and I thought, hmm, this is a chart that I like. In fact, it's only got five things. And it was the same thing that I had told Doug about how I think of soil pH. What I had told Doug is I prefer to just describe soil pH in words rather than with a chart. And I mentioned that I like to keep the soil pH at 5.5 or above. And the reason that I want to do that is to minimize soluble aluminum. Soluble aluminum is toxic to roots or can be toxic to roots if there's enough of it. And I also like to keep the soil pH at 5.5 or above to ensure that soil microbial activity is not limited by a low soil pH. And when I'm talking about soil microbial activity, I'm talking about things like mineralization and breakdown of organic matter, decomposition of thatch, that sort of thing. So so good, good things that could be suppressed if the soil pH is much less than 5.5. So above 5.5, it's a safety zone. And then I like to make sure the soil pH is at 8.5 or below. And the reason why is because if the soil pH is at 8.5, anything higher than 8.5, and there's some source of alkalinity that is unusual, and that source of alkalinity is almost certainly related to sodium, and there must be some issue, so, something strange is going on in that soil, and that should be investigated, and the soil pH should, if possible, be brought down. So I like to just describe in words those three things. Those are the three things... Uh, that I describe with those boundaries that I have on pH. 5.5 or above, 8.5 or less, 
at a low pH, I'm worried about soluble aluminum that could be toxic to roots. I'm worried about uh, soil microbial activity possibly being suppressed. And at a pH above 8.5, I'm worried about alkalinity that could be causing a problem and it's likely sodium related. And and also sometimes I will tell people, and yeah, if, if your pH is 7.5, 7.6, 7.7, if you start getting into that range and you start seeing some yellowing of the turf, uh, it's likely or, or it's possibly due to an iron deficiency, uh, a pH-induced iron chlorosis, and you can quickly fix that with a spray of iron onto the leaves. And you can also test that by a spray of iron onto the leaves. And that typically will happen in dry soils. And it sometimes will happen in, on cool season grass. It will sometimes happen towards the end of the summer on dry soils. That, that would be a typical time to see that particular problem. So for me, I, I think that's about all that we need to worry about with soil pH because the grass has the ability to adjust the pH right around the roots in what's called the rhizosphere. And the, um, the, the grass is, you can have great grass across a wide range of soil pHs. So I just don't worry about it that much. And, and I like to move on to things that are much more important. And so I thought, as I was reading that article by Dr. Carroll, I, I thought, okay, just a day or two before or, or a week before I'd talked with Doug Soldat and he'd mentioned about the chart and he, he kind of liked that one, that complicated one more than I did. Although he admitted that it had some flaws too. I said like, let's just not use it. But I thought if, if I did have to use a chart, I like this one by Dr. Carroll. So let me describe what's on it and what those five things are that he shows that I agree with. So it, uh, it shows that seven is a neutral pH. And then the, the first thing in the top left, and there's a direct link to this. I'll put a direct link to this in, in the show notes. So you can see this post and see this chart for yourself if you're just listening. It says at a pH of 5.5 or below, you could have uh, poten the potential increases to have a deficiency of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, calcium, or magnesium. Those happen to be the macronutrients and the secondary nutrients. So it's saying at below a pH of 5.5, you have the potential for all of those things uh, to be deficient, which, which is fine. That, I mean, I'm, I'm recommending for people to not go into that pH range anyway. It has a level of about 4.9. Um, and it says, so we're moving on to the second thing that it shows. The, the chart shows that below a pH of about 4.9, it says aluminum and or manganese are likely to be toxic to roots. And that may be the case, but I, uh, if you check what the solubility is of aluminum and you, you look at the aluminum that's extracted from soils, you'll see it basically drops to zero at 5.5 and then it rapidly increases below 5.5. Now, wh whether you're at 4.9 or 5.4, um, there's an increased risk of it. And, and by the word that he chose in this chart saying likely to be toxic, um, 
I think, yeah, it, at a pH 4.9 or below for sensitive grass species, it is, they, those are likely to be toxic to roots. Now, I think you're increasing the risk of that toxicity once you go below 5.5. So unless you've got a really good reason to let the soil pH drop below 5.5, I prefer that little bit of safety buffer and just reduce the risk by keeping the soluble aluminum essentially at zero, uh, which it will be if your soil pH is 5.5 or above. Going on to the third thing, which is also something I mentioned, the third thing was bacteria levels decline below a pH of 5.5. So it's showing an arrow below 5.5 and says bacterial levels decline for soil nitrogen transformations and thatch degradation. Acid-loving plants are favored. And so that's basically saying for the... Uh, my soil microbial activity and the breakdown of thatch and nitrogen mineralization, you want to be at 5.5 or above. And then it shows from a soil pH of 7.5 and up, it says potential for phosphorus, iron, or manganese deficiencies. Then it doesn't say you're guaranteed to have P iron or manganese deficiencies, but it says the potential increases, which that's also what I said is I'll tell people if your soil pH starts getting into the high sevens, just watch out, especially for iron, um, for phosphorus. I think we can figure out with soil testing. I don't think we need to just look for it. Um, with iron, we can just see it. Um, and and it, then if you know that you have a history of that, you can prevent it the next year by putting out some iron uh, on a regular schedule at the times of the year when you have seen a deficiency. And then the fifth item, it shows a pH above. I think he's probably indicating about 8.2. I think this would be better to put that at 8.5. It says above that level, you have a potential for sodic soil problems, which is uh, what happens when you have too much sodium in the soil, which you can use, uh, yeah, the, the soil pH. If the soil pH is... is 8.4, 8.5. I, I like to use 8.5. If it's above that, you you have a potential for sodic soil problems and some other things, but they're almost always related to sodium. So I think we can use this word sodic soil problems uh, as a a good way to describe this. So I thought, yeah, that's that's simple. It's 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 more detailed than the way that I explain it, and I think a lot of people are hungry for information and they want to know the details. And so I think this is all fact-based. It's, it's basically correct. It gives all the details that you might need. Uh, it doesn't scare you about too many things. And it shows a safety range that goes from basically from 5.5 up to about 8.2, which is very similar to the range that I recommend. So I think this does give you something that you can use because you can understand these five things, these five levels of soil pH at which you can start expecting more potential risk above or below these levels. So I would encourage every turfgrass manager to be familiar with these particular uh, items in relation to soil pH. So I was pleasantly surprised to come across this one by Dr. Caro, and it's got all the reasons why I like to use a pH of 5.5 on the low end 
and a pH of 8.5 on the high end as cutoff points for a normal acceptable range. And it's got a few extra bits about potential nutrient deficiencies that I found to be nicely phrased. So that's, that's one post about something that's important and that I've talked about. I've shared that pH article with a few people over the last couple of months. And uh, it's a topic that I find very interesting. And it turns out there's some related posts there that I'll mention also that are also uh, good, useful information about pH without these uh, fear-mongering things. So um, there, are, there are five five related posts that are below this one. I'll just read the titles. Uh, it is, uh, the first one is one reason why I recommend annual testing of sand root zones. And what that one was about was soil pH that rapidly changed in a sand root zone in a tropical climate where the grass is actively growing and receiving fertilizer throughout the year. And the soil pH rapidly changed into a dangerous zone. Well, by rapidly, I mean, it changed within a I think three year period. And I recommend annual testing to be able to prevent that. Um, so, so that's a, a post that you can look at. There's also one uh, that says, it is difficult to run a fertilizer down the field when the corn is six feet high, <laughs> which is a quote from a book. I think it's from uh, Dr. Vargas's uh, Turfgrass Diseases book. And he, he's also saying that pH is not such a big deal. And he's saying that uh, the reason why pH, if, if I remember right, he, he mentions in that, uh, that chapter of the book that soil pH is something that might be more important for agricultural crops because you can't just go adjust it. You can't go apply lime. You can't do the types of things that you can do on turf grass. And, and he, he used the expression, it is difficult to run a fertilizer down the field when the corn is six feet high. But for turf grass, we can go run fertilizer down the field uh, because the grass doesn't get to be six feet high. The third post that's in that list is why soil pH should usually be kept above 5.5. And I'm sure if that if you cl would click on that, that it would show a chart that shows some recent soil test data from ATC, uh, from some of our many uh, clients from around the world, anonymized, of course, but it was some an interesting data set showing the relationship between extractable soil aluminum and the soil pH of those samples. And it's just it's zero above 5.5, and it rapidly increases below 5.5. And that's just just a reminder to people that, that pH is, is related to the soluble aluminum in the soil. The next one is related to that also. It's aluminum. The title is Aluminum and Soil pH in 3010 Soil Samples, which is also another chart in which I showed that relationship from a older set of soil samples. And the next one is available in quotes, calcium, soil pH, and fear-mongering. And I remember what that one is about. It's about people saying that there's calcium in the soil, but because of the high pH of the soil, the calcium is unavailable, which is absolute hogwash. And that's the type of things that you hear from people that are trying to bamboozle you, but uh, you will find that the grass has actually more calcium 
that is taken up by the leaves in that type of situation at a higher pH when you do have solid phase calcium in the soil because the the reason why you have solid phase calcium in the soil is because the soil solution is so saturated with calcium that it precipitates into a solid form. So uh, you have solid there, but you also have dissolved calcium and you also have calcium on exchange sites and that type of thing is, uh, it, there's a chart there that shows um, tissue calcium. If I remember that post right, it, it shows tissue calcium for four different sand root zones, one of which was calcareous and had lots of calcium in the solid phase. And one of them had a very low pH and then there were a couple in between and the tissue uh, the tissue calcium tracked very closely with the amount of, uh, with the soil pH, if I remember correctly. So that's an interesting one. And of course, when I have thousand, uh, over a thousand blog posts, I haven't talked about them all on this show and I'm never going to get to talk about all of them on this show, but there's plenty of reading. So, uh, if you, if you are interested in this kind of stuff, uh, be sure to check out my website at asianturfgrass.com and you will be able to find out all kinds of information about these topics. Now, I want to jump to the next post. The next post that I want to talk about. So that was about pH. And then the next one is about uh, turfgrass, phosphorus, and potassium recommendations. Then there will be a direct link to this also in the show notes. And this post is related to how you should do soil testing properly. Because the there's a big problem with the way soil testing seems to be used at golf courses in the United States. And that problem has been documented in the two most recent GCSAA nutrient surveys. After the 2014 GCSAA nutrient survey, I read that article and looked at the tables and there was a very striking result that the people who responded to the survey and the people who responded to the survey were golf course superintendents. And this was for many facilities around the country. And, and so this is not for any one facility, but it's the average across all the facilities. If you look at the results of the survey on average, the golf course superintendents who do soil test applied more phosphorus and more potassium than those who do not soil test. But that's not the way it's supposed to work. And in this blog post, there are links to those articles that I wrote back then to those blog posts that I wrote back then explaining why that's not the way it's supposed to work. And in brief, the reason why it's not supposed to work that way is because the amount of phosphorus and potassium that it's logical to apply is a hundred percent of the amount that the grass can use. This is in the case when you don't know if the soil can apply any, can supply any. So if you don't know if the soil can supply, enough phosphorus or potassium, then it makes sense to just supply the grass with 100% of the phosphorus and potassium that it could use. 
right? Then then you just ignore the soil. You consider it like a hydroponic situation. That's a word that people sometimes use when they're talking about new sand-based root zones. And it just makes sense to be safe to apply 100% of phosphorus and potassium and just assume that the grass can get nothing from the soil. So that's like the logical default. And then if you do soil test, on average, you may find that some soils cannot supply enough, but many soils will be able to supply some. And so on average, when you look at all the, the soils, all the places that have soil tests, on average, the amount recommended as fertilizer should go down compared to that default of 100% of plant use. So because if, if you are soil testing, you're, you're doing that to find out if the soil can supply any or not. Of course, people have a long history of poor interpretation of soil tests, and uh, that's something that is also well documented and it's frequently discussed. But I think that the recommendations might be getting better because I was pleased to see that in the most recent survey, which is uh, an article by Shaddix et al., uh, just recently at the end of 2022. And this was the survey results from 2021. And I use the nitrogen rate applied as a baseline. So the, so the turf grass managers who soil test, they also apply more nitrogen. And there are a lot of reasons for that. It's not because of soil testing. So it must be something to do with the way that they manage, or perhaps this is higher budget facilities or busier facilities that have more revenue and uh, busier facilities with more traffic. So they need to apply more nitrogen to have a increased growth rate or, or something like that. And it's about a 20% increase. I use the log increase, um, which is symmetrical and it's consistent across all of these elements so that we can compare these percentages um, in a, in a comparable way. And so we're, we basically have this baseline increase of nitrogen, uh, of about 20%. When you, when you move from not soil testing to soil testing, when you look at the, all the golf courses that, that do soil test on average, their nitrogen rate is about 20% higher. And that is averaged across greens, fairways, tees, and rough. So I use that nitrogen as the baseline, and then I looked what happens with the phosphate. And in, 24, in the 2014 survey, they also were applying about 20% more phosphate. But this year, in, or sorry, in the, the most recent survey, the 2021 survey, that's down to about 9% on average. So actually, it, it seems that there actually is a decrease in phosphorus now um, because, because they're expected to apply about 20% more, they're applying about 20% more nitrogen. And so you'd expect that turf grass managers would also apply about 20% more phosphorus, but they're actually applying less than 10% on average. So, um, there's less than 10% increase of phosphorus, which is less than the increase in nitrogen. And it's less than the increase that we saw with phosphorus in 2014. So that tells me that the turf grass managers are are getting better recommendations, are making better better interpretations of the soil test results. And for potassium, there's still a bit of an increase. 
which is not a surprise, but the the increase now is about 35%. So that's that's more, right? So so definitely the the baseline level is 20%. With phosphorus, the the average is actually lower than that. With potassium, the average is higher. It's 35%, meaning there's a 35% increase in potassium. Um, and, and, and I'm using nitrogen as the baseline at 20%. But the good thing is, compared to 2014, in 2014, it was about 39% increase in potassium. So the potassium is also decreasing just a little bit for those who soil test. So I think this shows, because the phosphorus is, is down and the potassium is down in relation to nitrogen in the 2021 survey compared to the 2014 survey, I, I speculate that this, uh, this might be getting better and people might be becoming more aware of that and paying closer attention to interpreting their soil tests correctly or making better recommendations or getting better recommendations. So I concluded this post by saying there is still plenty of room for improvement, but the differences look better in 2021 than they did in 2014. So that is a bit of good news. And I'm going to tell you the summary recommendation from that. The summary recommendation from that is check out the MLSN guidelines, please. Uh, if you haven't yet, they work really well. They guarantee that you will be supplying the grass with all the nutrients it can use. And it is a very effective way to interpret soil tests for high performance turf grass and you won't be getting crazy recommendations for nutrients that the soil can't hold the the whole thing about the potassium over recommendations and the reason why superintendents have applied more potassium than than uh the nitrogen when they soil test i mean they're basically basically if you move from not soil testing to soil testing, you end up applying on average 35% more potassium. Why? Uh, I would say that it's because the soil tests are making, the soil test interpretations are completely wrong. And I'm not saying my soil test interpretations are completely wrong. I'm not saying everybody's soil test interpretations are completely wrong, but there are a lot of recommendations for applying potassium at relatively high rates because turf grass is grown in sand root zones. Turf grass has a low cation exchange capacity. Soils with a low cation exchange capacity cannot hold a lot of cations. Potassium in the soil is a cation and therefore the soils are supposed to be low in potassium. But if you, if you get the soil test interpreted in the wrong way, you will get recommended to add more potassium because you've sent in a sample from a sand root zone that has a low cation exchange capacity. It's expected that your potassium will be relatively low. It doesn't mean it's not enough for the grass. It just means the amount you should apply is something that's similar to the amount that the plant can use. That guarantees in a hydroponic type of situation that if you apply potassium in 
doses that the plant can use that match the growth rate of the grass, you'll be supplying about 100% of plant use. And you shouldn't try to change the soil. You shouldn't try to add a whole bunch of potassium to increase the amount in the soil. It can't increase in the soil. It cannot because your CEC is low. And it, it's just, unless you, in, unless you add some clay or unless you add some zeolite, unless you increase the CEC of the soil at the same time you apply the potassium, it's not going to stay in the soil. So th that is like low hanging fruit. That's an easy one to do better on. And if you are adding quite a bit of potassium, if you're adding more potassium than nitrogen, for example, you should probably question why you are doing that. And if your soil tests year after year come back as low in potassium and you keep adding lots and lots of potassium, you can do a little bit of math and figure out that all that potassium is gone. It didn't go into the plant and it obviously didn't stay in the soil if your soil test keeps coming back low in potassium. If the soil is not increasing in potassium, that potassium is leaching, it's going out in the drainage water or it's somewhere below the root zone. And there is um, a, a really interesting project by Jackie Guevara and she did an ATC office hours with me where we discussed this and there was a lot of potassium applied in an experiment that she did that was completely unaccounted for at the end of the experiment because the soil can't hold all that extra potassium that gets applied so it's just there's no reason to do it it doesn't help the grass it doesn't help the soil um, as long as you prevent a deficiency as long as you supply all that the grass can use you're going to be just fine and that's what mlsn does and i guess most of the people listening to this are probably already using mlsn and are probably quite aware of this but it's something that uh tell a friend <laughs> uh, you can probably help some people save some money or not worry about imaginary problems and make sure that they supply enough potassium uh if you make help help them to understand this so that is my rant about potassium and mlsn for now and now another one and this is great this is a podcast that i recommend the blog post is titled putting green measurements and i start off by showing a picture of green speed measurement at hazeltine national golf club's 16th green during the 2016 Ryder cup the flag in the photo says seven because during the 2016 Ryder cup the, normally the hole that plays is 16 for the members, which is out on the lake, uh, was played as hole number seven during the, the Ryder Cup. And I said there, well, this it turns out that this podcast that I'm recommending was recorded on this very green. So uh, I, I thought it would be appropriate to show a picture of that green in the blog post. And I said, many podcasts go on for hours. Mine often do. But this one is only 20 minutes information density a lot of useful insight in a short time this particular episode is hard to beat and what this episode is is adam miller from the usga green section talking with chris tritabaugh at hazeltine national golf club they recorded this towards the end of last summer maybe the middle of last summer and they talked for 20 minutes about measurements on putting greens now they did a Adam asked some terrific questions and Chris gave some really well thought out and clear answers. And I thought, uh, it, it's just a tremendous, uh, 20 minutes. So I, I recommend that you listen to it. If you haven't already, I listened to it twice. Um, it, 
he talks about how he collects the data, what insights he obtains, and a few examples of the things that he's been surprised by, um, a few examples of how he actually puts the data to use or what he has adjusted in response to, to these measurements, and what the overall goal of all this is anyway. So I put a link there to listen to that. And uh, I said, put this one in your listening queue. I'm sure many of you have already listened to that. But if you haven't, check out, go to ATC, uh, AsianTurfGrass.com, go to the post called putting green measurements in the blog section of the website and in there you'll find a link to listen to this particular usga green section podcast with adam miller and chris tritabaugh the data collection that chris has been doing he talked about things that he wasn't doing during the Ryder cup that he is doing now and he talks about why he's doing it and the things that he learned so it's it's a lot of things that we talk about on this show or that I talk about on this show, things like clipping volume, things like total organic matter measurement or OM246, and a lot of the playability measurements, the bobble test, things that, um, yeah, a lot of these things he, he wasn't measuring in 2016. I wasn't measuring them in 2016, but I find them so useful that I recommend them to a lot of people and I recommend them to you. So have a listen to that. And if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and the season's uh, just uh, around the corner or just getting underway, maybe you can find some insight about a, a few things that you maybe are, are thinking about implementing in the work that you do this year. If you're in the Southern Hemisphere and uh, you know, you're coming to the end of the season, maybe you can play around with some things here uh, before the season's over and uh, see if it might be useful for you as you get ready uh, for the winter and then get ready for implementing an even improved set of turfgrass management uh, works in the upcoming season so everybody uh, thank you so much for listening thank you so much for your interest in these topics I will be back again soon with another interesting ATC double cut topic. And for now, I will sign off and say goodbye for ATC from Maui. I am Micah Woods. <laughs>